We are headed to the Old Testament prophet, minor prophet of Habakkuk this morning. So if you brought your Bible, you can begin turning to Habakkuk chapter 1. If you pronounce it Habakkuk, we can thumb wrestle after the service and decide who is right. We are uh, on our way to finishing our series, looking at each of the 12 minor prophets in a series I've entitled God at the Mic. Uh, as, as we think about our world today, there, there are many in our world who would love to grab the proverbial mic and, and share what they believe to be their truth or their, their version of reality, and yet we come this morning back to God's Word that is inspired by the Holy Spirit that speaks God's truth to us and God's grace to us. Um, Habakkuk, as, as we walk through this book this morning is fairly unique even among the minor prophets because rather than speaking directly to God's people as the remainder of them do, Habakkuk is actually a conversation back and forth between the prophet Habakkuk and God. And so we will hear in the three short chapters of the book of Habakkuk two complaints from the prophet Habakkuk to God, and then we'll hear two responses from God, and then in chapter three we get a final prayer that Habakkuk prays to the Lord. And because it is so short, it's actually only 56 verses, we're going to attempt to cover the entire content of the book of Habakkuk here this morning. And as we walk through this, you're going to see that Habakkuk's struggles, uh, Habakkuk's questions and even complaints or laments are ones that every single person on the planet can very much identify with. And we can hear his heart and we can hear God's heart to his people this morning. So hear now from God's word in Habakkuk chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1, and we'll read all the way to verse 11 to begin our time together. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now in verse 5, we hear God's first response. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, to swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and ask his blessing over his word. Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you. We pray that as you speak your truth and your grace, that you would give us ears to listen, hearts to receive. Lord, we submit ourselves to you this morning, and we come to you by the grace of Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God, by his word this morning and by his Holy Spirit, is going to speak to us about three things this morning. Worry, wait, 
and worship. Number one, we've just seen here in Habakkuk chapter one and verses one through 11, we get our first reality check and our first application from God's word, which is this, give God your worry. Habakkuk's first complaint here to God is essentially, God, you are indifferent to my suffering. In verse three, he says, why do you idly look at wrong? See, Habakkuk would fit right into how much of what we experience in today's culture, how we feel about today's culture, just that heartbeat of, God, where are you? Do you care? Uh, my ESV Gospel Transformation Bible describes the, what they were probably feeling with uh, what I thought was very helpful. It says uh, of Habakkuk, amid Israel's internal spiritual corruption and external political pressure, the prophet begins to doubt whether there will be justice against evil and mercy for the faithful. So this is the heartbeat even in our own day of, man, God, the church is so messed up, or my life and my family is so messed up, or the government is so messed up, and the laws that we claim to live by are so messed up, and there's so much corruption in, in my heart and in the world and in my country. God, do you care? Um, there was a Barna study that was done about 10 years ago now, and it asked uh, this question, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? What do you think people's responses were to that survey? If you could ask God one question, what would you like to ask him? What do you think? I could imagine a few different things. The answer that they came up with that was most common was, why is there pain and suffering in the world? Does that surprise you? Doesn't surprise me. It's really another iteration of the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? But if we're being honest, and I think Habakkuk here is being honest on our behalf, the reality when we process that question, what we're really asking is, why, God, do bad things happen to me? It's very personal. And so maybe someone has mistreated you. Maybe someone has lied about you. Maybe someone has treated you deeply unfairly. Maybe your marriage and parenting this morning feels like just constant frustration or even failure at times. Maybe you feel persecuted in some way because you have sought to be faithful to God and to his word and you've been attacked for it. Maybe you're sick and it's been ongoing. Or maybe you care for someone who is sick or requires a whole lot of care and it's just, it's hard, it's exhausting. Maybe your life just feels overwhelming in one way or another and you can't seem to break free of what just feels like an endless downward cycle. God's word here says to you, give your complaint, give your grief, give your frustration, give your hurt, give your lament to God. He will hear you. See, the question behind the question for Habakkuk and for all of us, I think really is, is, is God, not so much do you see the evil that's happening here, it's God, do you see me? Do you hear me? Do you care? Brothers and sisters, Jesus in the New Testament says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine: Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. It's an invitation, come to me. Give your worry to me, says Jesus. And Jesus can, can handle it. He's God. He wants to hear from you. 
I find that this is an incredibly difficult thing for Christians, though, to really wrap, maybe not our head around, but to wrap our heart around. Um, 13 years ago now, I was sitting in a, in a session with my Christian counselor whose name was Trent, and, and he was, I think, sensing the same dilemma in my own head and heart. And so he gives me this illustration to help me understand. He says, Trent says, I have a seven-year-old son, and my seven-year-old son struggles deeply already with anxiety and a depression that we just can't seem to help him with or understand. And he gets so upset, he, he will begin to scream and he will punch the door and he will, he will punch me because he's so overwhelmed. Um, but Trent says that Trent says, listen, my son is, is 70 pounds soaking wet. Trent is easily 6'4", 300. And so in that moment, he's saying, listen, I, as his dad, I have a couple choices. I can ignore him. I can push him away. I can fight back, or I can listen, I can embrace him, and I can hug him and hold on to him as he freaks out on me. And what inevitably happens, he says, is my son yells at me, and he blames me for things that I may or may not have, have done, and he hits me, and he, he even cusses at me. Um, he'll punch me, but I can handle it. I'm his dad. Where else would I want my son to be than, than right here. And his point to me was, he said, why can't you begin to relate with your heavenly father a little bit more like that? You don't have to come to God as if you have it all together. You don't have to fake God. I've already figured everything out and I'm coming to you holy and straightened out. No, no, quite the opposite. You don't have to either, which I think many believers think I'm not allowed to bring my frustrations or talk nasty to God. You can bring all the bitterness that you think the solution is just bottle it up, suppress it, ignore it, maybe it'll go away. You can bring that in prayer to a loving and faithful and holy God who is ready and willing to listen to you. And so Habakkuk is doing just that. This is unadulterated frustrations and questions and God listens and guess what? God hears, God sees, and God immediately responds. It's hard, but God responds. So here's God's first response that we read here already in verses one through 11. And it's, it's probably not at all what Habakkuk was hoping for. Uh, if you were in his position, it's probably not what you were hoping for either because God essentially says in verse five through seven, I will bring judgment and justice on you, on my people, Israel and Judah. See, again, like Habakkuk, we are always very fine with somebody else getting justice for the bad things that they've done, but we're a little less comfortable when God says, I'm going to bring you justice for your own sins. But what God is doing here is, is comforting us a couple different ways. One, he's reminding us to look into our own hearts and remember that I am a sinner too. That not only helps me show grace to others, but it reminds me how much I need his grace towards me. God, I'm a sinner too. But it also brings great comfort because in God speaking this word of justice, we remember that when we very often in this life are a victim of injustice, big injustices, little injustices, whatever it may be, God sees, God cares, and God will handle it. God will step into those moments and those situations. And so here... God says that he's going to use an evil people. He's clear about that up front. He says, I'm going to use the Chaldeans, 
which is just another name for the Babylonians that we've heard so much about throughout this entire series. I'm going to use the Babylonians as a vessel, even in their wickedness, to bring my righteous judgment. That's a hard truth, isn't it? It's a hard truth for us today. God's justice is a hard truth. So the question for us is, will we trust God? Will we trust him in what might not always make sense to us up front? And so number two, God's word continues to speak to us. And, he's, and God's going to speak to us a second time here. It says, live by faith as you wait. Number two, live by faith as you wait. We see this as we pick up in chapter one and verse 12 and the second discussion between Habakkuk and God that will take us all the way to chapter two and verse 20. So here's the beginning of Habakkuk's second complaint. He speaks, God listens, and Habakkuk has sort of a follow-up question. Okay, God, well, you've said this. Now here's my next thought. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Okay, so if Habakkuk's first complaint was essentially, God, you're indifferent to my suffering. His second complaint is, God, you are inconsistent in your justice. Verse 13, he says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. Now, if we're honest this morning, each one of us can resonate with that, that frustration. God, why is this happening? But notice what Habakkuk is actually doing in his heart here. He's kind of becoming a relativist, isn't he? God, what they did is way worse than what we did. If you're not sure what that looks like, talk to any child after this morning's service and ask them how things have gone with their sibling over the last 24 hours. We inevitably move to this relativism when we don't want to be called out on our own sin and we want to see that other person experience justice. And that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. But his question is a valid one when he says, how can a good God use evil Babylon to bring justice on his own people? The heartbeat here is this. God, it feels like you're not fair. You ever been there? You've been in a situation in life as a believer or maybe before you became a believer. Maybe you're there today, you don't believe in God and you would say, God, it to me looks an awful lot like you're not fair. That is what Habakkuk is, is wrestling with here, that question. But notice that for Habakkuk, even this complaint or we might call it a lament comes from an immediate position of faith. Listen to the words that Habakkuk in the depths of his frustration, still chooses to say. He says, God, you're everlasting. We shall not die. Oh, Lord, my God. It's a personal relationship. My Holy One. He acknowledges that God is sovereign. He says, you have ordained Babylon as judgment. And he says, you see the truth. You see their evil. And so in this moment... God listens, and God immediately responds again to Habakkuk, and this is his second response that is essentially the just shall live by faith. 
Again, maybe not quite what Habakkuk was looking for, but how often do we come into a conversation with God? We've already decided what we want to hear from God, but God has something so much better if we will just listen. So Habakkuk chapter 2, 2 through 5, this is the beginning of God's second response. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So God says essentially, if you look at Babylon, Babylon is arrogant, Babylon is prideful, Babylon acts like they are actually God. And then what seems like almost a throwaway, unless you you sort of stop and go, wait a second, he's actually talking about alcohol here for just a second. And he's saying, alcohol is a liar. Alcohol may promise to fix your problems. You can run there and it can numb your problems, but don't go there because it's going to lead to death. Come to me and trust me instead. And he said, God says, therefore, child of God, son of God, daughter of God, trust me. You may have to wait, but there is a purpose in the waiting. Trust me, live by faith. Now, what is faith? Go to the New Testament. Hebrews gives us a phenomenal definition. Hebrews 11.1, great verse to memorize. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. God's not asking you for blind faith, but a deep-rooted trust in his faithfulness to you. See, what's going on for Habakkuk so often goes on for us as well. Habakkuk is stuck on what he can actually see. And sometimes we just get locked up on what's immediately here in front of us. If we go back to his list in chapter one, he says, God, here's what I see. Sin, strife, contention, violence, Law is paralyzed, justice is perverted. Welcome to 2023. Okay, so we see those things immediately in front of us, but what God is asking Habakkuk to do is to stop focusing on what you can see and consider what only God can see. Consider what God might be doing behind the scenes. Consider his perfect, appointed, to use the Bible's word, purposes. Trust me. In uh, 2013, The uh, Philadelphia 76ers were the worst team in the NBA. They stunk on ice year after year after year. And the, uh, the fans began to get very frustrated with the Philadelphia 76ers until rookie Joel Embiid shows up. And he coined a phrase in 2014 when he first arrived, and they were the worst team in the league. He had big promises, and he said, trust the process. Trust the process. Beloved, God is saying to you in the same way, trust the process. For the 76ers fans, what they saw was disaster. 
The team was terrible. Nothing is ever going to change. It's not going to get any better. But Joel said, trust the process. And Habakkuk, on behalf of the God Almighty, says to you this morning, trust the process. God is providentially bringing to pass what he has ordained from before the foundations of the world. God says, trust me, even if it seems slow to you, wait for it. And we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in the reality that a savior was on his way to us. In the New Testament, Peter picks up this reality, 2 Peter 3, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Grace and justice. Trust me. Trust the process. You know, faith is believing at its core. It's believing who God says he is. That who God says he is in the word, that that is who he really is. Now, when we encounter that question of who is God, I would suggest to you that there's really only four answers that anybody can come up with. We might name them different things, but there's really, at the end of the day, there's four ways to answer the question, who is God? The first is this, fake God. It's an option. It's not real. Who is God? He's fake God. The second option is mean God. He's real. He's even sovereign. He just doesn't care about you. Got fake God, mean God. Many churches in the United States of America will go with option number three. Do not go with option number three. Option number three is wimpy God. Wimpy God. God cares. He's just not sovereign, and there's really not a whole lot he can do about it. And we can dress that up and make it sound really, really good, but that's what we're teaching. God's wimpy God. He cares a lot. His heart goes out to you. There's just not a whole lot he can do. It's nonsense. There's only one true answer the scripture gives us for who is God, and that is that he is a good God. He's a good God. What does that mean? It means God is absolutely sovereign and in total control. And in everything that he does, he is good. He cares. He's a good God. Faith is believing that God is who he says he is. Faith is also believing that God will use even the worst circumstances in your life for your good if you are in Christ. We see this reality play out at the very beginning of the Bible. If we go all the way back to the first book of the Bible and the story of Genesis, towards the end of the book of Genesis, we have this fascinating character whose name is Joseph. And Joseph had a couple of bad days, didn't he? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. That's a bad day. He is falsely accused of adultery. That's a double bad day. And then he is unjustly imprisoned for years. That's a lousy life. I think of all the believers that we know about in Old New Testament, he had such a good reason to be like, God, come on, and ask the same questions that, that Habakkuk is, is asking and to be frustrated, but God. 
God raised him up. God raised Joseph up. And Joseph stands in the Old Testament as this beautiful Old Testament picture of what Jesus would come to be for us in the New Testament because God raised Joseph up and literally used him to save thousands and thousands of lives, made him second in charge of all of Egypt. And Joseph's comment on it in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 is this talking to his brothers after the fact, after they've done all these terrible things to him. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Now listen to the unshakable covenant promises of God in the New Testament. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that all things, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. If you are in Christ, this is a promise for God's people. If you are not in Christ, this is yet another reason to run to him for mercy today. The promise is for God's people. I will use even the worst things that have happened in your life for your good. God, I don't believe that. How could that possibly be true? And God says, just wait. Trust the process. Have faith in me. Bring your frustration to me. Trust the process. I've got you. The the remainder of chapter two is is God begins to explain what he's going to do. So verses six through 20 is just God's justice for Babylon. All those bad people that have done those bad things to you, I got it. I'm going to take care of them. And what it reveals in one phrase is that God is fair. God does bring justice, and Habakkuk comes to to see that. God will bring justice, by the way, on all who have sinned. Old Testament and New Testament, that includes everybody in this room. But here's some even better news. God is better than fair. God is better than fair, because you and I, every single one of us, deserve God's judgment, but through Jesus, we can experience his grace. See, God is always perfectly just. He is always perfectly merciful. You and I deserve death and hell for sin, but God has offered us grace through the person and the work of Jesus Christ instead. And here's the reality. There is no more evil day. There was no no more horrific moment in the history of the world than the moment than the sinless son of God was hung on a cross to die for sins that he did not commit by the very people who did commit them. You want to talk about a dark day? That was it. And even that, God was totally in sovereign control and using it for our good. Acts 2.23, in case you don't believe me. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is divine sovereignty and human responsibility all in one verse. God was not surprised when Adam and Eve sinned. He didn't go, oh man, plan B, what do I do now? He's known from the beginning that in love, he would send his son to save you and I. God brings ultimate good, ultimate salvation out of the worst evil of all time. And he invites you this very day to place your faith and your trust in him. The offer is there. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your savior, today is the day. Come to him and say, forgive me of my sins. The promises that you've offered, 
I want those. I want to spend eternity with you in a very real place called heaven. And brothers and sisters, listen, if, if God could handle that moment, Jesus' death on the cross, he can handle the worst day you've ever had. Whatever you're going through right now, he can handle it. The just shall live by faith. Third and finally, find joy in worship. We've got the worry, the wait, and Habakkuk is moved to worship. All of chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Habakkuk chapter 3 begins this way. This is a prayer of Habakkuk, and he says this now. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The NIV translates this, O Lord, do I fear, as, O Lord, I stand in awe. So the fear of God is not a terror. The fear of God is awe. It's amazement. It's humbly acknowledging who he is. It's worship. The fear of the Lord is saying, God, I recognize joyfully that you are Lord, you are God, and I am not. And you see the transformation that's happening before our very eyes in the heart and the life of Habakkuk as he has been changed by the refining fire of God, these hard circumstances God has used to move him to a greater place of faith and a greater place of joy in his daily life. Saying, God, I trust your good and your sovereign purposes for my life. He moves us to that place of, God, I welcome your plans and your purposes in my life. I'm not in charge. You are. He says, in your wrath, remember mercy. That is an interesting statement, isn't it? I'm going to teach my kids to say that to me from now on. In your wrath, remember mercy. What does God mean? Or what does Habakkuk mean? He's acknowledging and praising God, again, for God's perfect justice and his perfect mercy simultaneously. He says, revive my wandering heart. I worship you for your justice and for your grace. I wonder if, we, if this can be the keeping it real honesty portion of the sermon this morning. I wonder if in your own heart you've ever been in that position where you thought, there is nobody that I can trust. Everybody lets me down. Let me just tell you on behalf of Habakkuk, God will never let you down. And Habakkuk wants to tell us this because he essentially goes on a history lesson for the vast majority of the remainder of chapter three and, and basically says, listen, God has always been faithful in the past, so I know he's gonna continue to be faithful in the future. So he says in chapter three, verse five, God delivered Israel from Egypt. I remember that one. Chapter three, verse eight, God brought them through the Red Sea. Remember that amazing story? Israel goes through on dry land. 3.11, God defeats their enemy, the Canaanites. 3.13, God established the promised land for his, quote, anointed. Red alert. That's an important word. God established the promised land for his anointed. Look at Habakkuk 3.13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. Yes, please, I'll take some of that. That sounds amazing. Jesus 
has come, guys, and has crushed the head of all your enemies. You know where we first get that promise? It's all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, God promises that there will come one, the anointed one, who will crush the head of Satan. And believer, Jesus has come and he has done that work. He has crushed the head of Satan. He has crushed the head of your sins and your shame and your guilt. He has destroyed death on your behalf. Don't worry about Babylon. God has already taken care of your greatest enemy so that you would not have to. The word anointed one is the word from which we get Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, we see over and over and over and over again, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. One book, one message. And then he ends with what is probably one of the most powerful passages in scripture, certainly very well known. This is Hebrews chapter three, verses 17 through 19, that reminds us that you have been gifted true joy, not happiness that's fleeting, but true joy in God. Habakkuk says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Keep in mind, this is an agrarian culture. He's saying, if everything falls apart, insert your own version here, but he's saying, if everything completely falls apart, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Amen? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God, I worship you for who you are and the reality of your characteristics and your holiness and your attributes destroys the realities of what I see immediately in front of me. My hope is not in the here and now. My hope is in you. And even if I don't understand, God, I trust you. Job, remember Job, right? Job says, though you slay me, Lord, yet I will praise you. Job trusted God. God delivered. Happiness is gonna come and go, guys. It is absolutely gonna come and go. But joy in the Lord will never fail because Christ will never fail. God, all my hope is in you. I worship you for who you are. And so, beloved, we can give all of our worry to God. We can wait on him in his perfect timing in faith. He's got it. He knows what he's doing, especially when we don't. And we can find true joy when we come to him in worship. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that your ears are always open. I don't have to sanitize my prayer. I can be honest. You are ready to listen. And Father, we just put ourselves in a position this morning to say, Lord, we are ready to listen to you. It may be a hard truth that we don't want to hear, but Lord, we know that there's going to be unstoppable love behind it as well. 
So Father, give us hearts that would constantly talk to you in prayer, share our thoughts, share our requests, our needs, our questions, our doubts, our fears. Lord, help us to offer up to you as well our praises, our joys, our thankfulness. Help us to acknowledge all the ways that you have been good, even when we didn't trust you. You've been faithful. We've been faithless. But Lord, would you grow our faith in you this morning? Father, everyone puts faith in somebody or something. We repent of the ways in which we've put our faith in anybody or anything other than you, God. Lord, I pray for those who have never experienced the joy of faith in you. And I pray that today might be the day that they would admit, Lord, the things, the people, the situations, the idols that I've put my faith in, Lord, they they were sin. They were wrong. They didn't do what they promised. Father, I'm laying down my guilt, my shame, my struggles, and my questions at the foot of the cross. Forgive me. Raise me up, Lord. Give me new life. You're the only one who can. You've never failed me once, Lord Jesus. You have never failed us once. And so we praise you for that. Lord, give us fresh joy as our eyes are focused not on circumstances, but on the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Give us joy in worship and knowing you. Lord, when we worship other things, it's a disaster. But when we worship you, there is joy. So Lord, whether the the fig tree has figs on it or not, we will worship you this day and for the rest of our lives. And we can't wait for an eternity where we will do it in a perfect place with you face to face. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.